to Acts chapter 21. Our text this morning is a very long narrative. I have in your bulletin Acts 21, 27 through 22, 29. However, I am going to cut that short and go to Acts 22, 22. I don't know how much time cutting off seven verses will save us, but I'm sure you will appreciate any time you can get. <laughs> the Apostle Paul has been has arrived at Jerusalem. We saw last week where he had received some instruction from the elders to we'll get into this later to respect respect the traditions around the temple and around the church at Jerusalem so that people may not falsely accuse Paul of preaching heresy and going against the law of God. In verse 27 of chapter 21, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and was defiled and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of a cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And the tribune said, Do you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, 
binding and delivering to prison both men and women as high as the priest as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For the, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in the bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said to me, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness from him, for him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that, it, that, one in, that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and proving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Upon this word they listened to him. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider this text, we want to glean one lesson out of this, or perhaps two, that will guide us by your wisdom and by your truth, that will equip us, that will give us strength of faith to press on, even in these spiritually dark and trying days. Help us discern your truth from, man's, from Satan's lie. Help us to see your light shining in this dark world. May we never be afraid to share it with obedience and with courage and with your Spirit's power. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There is something about the hearts of lost people who insist 
on proving their own righteousness and measuring their own goodness by their own works. Very basic, simple statement. And that's what we see going on here. There is something about the hearts of lost people who insist on proving their own righteousness and measuring their own goodness by their own good works. And as we sort through this and work this out and see this come before us in the light of the Scripture, we want to look through some things here. We have a venue, we have an event, we have instigators, we have rescuers, and we see an opportunity to share the gospel. The venue, an event, the instigators, rescuers, and an opportunity to share the gospel. All in this broad, long narrative. Those of you who are familiar with a venue, a venue is a place where it could be a place for a concert, it could be a place for a play, some sort of theater event. In this case, the venue was the Temple Mount, the temple itself in Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is built on a hill, or some call it a mountain, or a mount. It's the highest hill in Jerusalem. Solomon built the first temple upon this mount. But the temple that was there at Paul's day was Herod's temple. It was not Solomon's temple. The Temple Mount, or also known as Mount Moriah, was the very place where Abraham came and offered his only son Isaac as sacrifice. Genesis 22, he and his son had gathered the wood and taken the fire and were on their way to the mountain. His son Isaac asked him, where is the offering, Lord? And with a heavy heart, because Abraham knew what God had asked him to do, he told his son, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And you know the story very well. When Abraham was about to lower the knife into his son, the Lord stopped him. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Mount Moriah is the place not far outside the city gates, the city walls, the place called Golgotha, where the Son of God died for the sins of the world. So this was a very sacred place, a very important place to the people of Israel. Now, the notes that I'm about to share about the temple are not divinely inspired because the temple has not existed since 70 AD. It was destroyed by the Romans trying to stop a Jewish riot. But most of these notes are gleaned from the writings of Avi Yona, a Jewish historian who has studied this extensively, studied the writings of historians from the time of Paul, studied scriptures itself, themselves, and has kind of laid out the footprint 
And I'm not going to be able to illustrate that with pictures, but I'll try my best to describe it with words. It's very fascinating and very interesting. In Paul's day, if you were to approach the temple, you would come up to the temple mount, and there would be four walls. I mean, the whole place was surrounded by high walls, at least two stories, perhaps in some places three stories high. And the outer gates were limited in number. Suppose you entered the Susa gate at the base of the east wall of the Temple Mount. You would find inside a series of stairs. Ascending those stairs would eventually lead you out into the sunlight within the walls of the temple. And you would be standing in the court of the Gentiles. The size of the area, the whole Temple Mount, is equivalent to about four football fields stacked together too long and too wide. There's a lot of space. And in the center of this was the temple, and it itself was surrounded by walls again. To the south, you can see the colonnades known as Solomon's Porch. This was where the apostles began preaching after Pentecost. To the northwest, toward the back of the, the facility, just outside the walls. In fact, pictures and diagrams say that that wall was shared by a Roman fortress called Antonia, Fortress of Antonia. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But in front of you, if you were still on the east side facing west, because the front of the sanctuary always faced east. You would be looking west into the doorways. You would first see the gate called Beautiful, the gate through the first wall of the temple area itself. Twelve steps up, you would go through that beautiful gate and into Israel's, the Israelites' court. It was divided, a place for the women, a place for the men, you go across that court, and 12 steps up further, you would go into the priest's court. That's where the work of the sacrifice was prepared. 12 more steps up, you would go into the holy, into the sanctuary, where you would find the menorah, the showbread, and the altar of incense. And then a few more steps up into the Holy of Holies, which was separated by a veil. But for you, you could not go in there. You were not good enough. You were, you were Gentile. Before you could even approach the gate called Beautiful, before you could even go within the walls and the proper courts of the temple, there was another wall, a lower wall, a balustrade that went all the way around the temple courts and on those walls were the signs carved in stone in Latin, in Hebrew, and in Greek. Gentiles, something to the effect, Gentiles not permitted beyond this point on penalty of death. What a place for grace and exception. A 
Now, Paul was in Jerusalem for Pentecost. That, that, that was the venue. This is where all of this is happening. Paul was in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and on this particular day in our text, he is at the temple, and he's behaving himself. He is compliant. He is doing what James and the elders of the church at Jerusalem have instructed him to do. He's not stirring up trouble. But something happened. Here's the event. It was a riot. Paul was right in the middle of it, although he did not start it. There were some instigators. Jews from Asia, verse 27 of chapter 21, when the seven days were almost completed, Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed or presumed or assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. These Jews from Asia, remember, Paul had just finished his third missionary journey through Asia. And everywhere he went, in every city, in every town, every place, he was preaching and teaching the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jews from Asia had also come to Israel. This was a festival of Pentecost. This was an annual event, 50 days after Passover. So this was how they knew who he was. They were very familiar with Paul's ministry. And they were probably angry with him out there. There were several riots that were started trying to shut Paul up. Some of them may have been started by these kinds of men while he was on his missionary journey. But now he's in Jerusalem, and they're not going to put up with it. These Jews from Asia followed the law of Moses and the traditions of men. This was how they measured their own righteousness. This was how they knew they were good people. There's something about the hearts of lost people who insist on proving their own righteousness and measure their own goodness by their own good works. It is a matter of pride. It is a matter of sinful pride. You want to exalt your own self-worth before a holy and righteous God, then all you're going to do is Expose yourself as someone who is so very proud and so very foolish because there is nothing in you that is good enough to please God. Twice in the book of Proverbs, these words are mentioned word for word. Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. That should speak volumes to us. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he says, 
quoting Psalms in Romans 3, Paul said, There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is a way that seems right to him. A man wants to define what is right for himself. And that man also thinks that that should be good enough for God. But scripture says, the Bible says, its end is the way of death. Because none of us are righteous. None of us are good enough. The law is God's standard of righteousness. It is impossible to keep God's law perfectly. The law is meant to teach us what God requires. It is also meant to show us what we lack. And both of those things should show us which way we should go and how we should live. But we know that we can never be perfect or come to the level of perfection that God demands. However, there are some who are so spiritually blind that they think they can keep the law and be good enough. In this case, the Jews from Asia were not about to let Paul desecrate the temple. Here's someone who... He's preaching to Gentiles. We don't even let Gentiles into the temple. This man is teaching them they don't need to be circumcised. This man is teaching them they don't have to obey the laws of Moses. That's not what he was teaching. But they measured Paul by their own standards. They judged Paul as inadequate. They judged Paul as, an, as a heretic. And they started a riot. They assumed that he had come from, from Asia to Pentecost, and they knew that some of the Greeks from the church at Ephesus had come with him. They just assumed, oh, well, he's probably shown them, gave them the whole grand tour and desecrated the temple, which he did not. In verse 30 of our text, all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. It was a riot. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. At once, the gates were shut, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. Interpreting this, the rioters likely dragged Paul out through the north gate, which, would, which exited at the base of the fortress of Antonio. Roman soldiers were garrisoned there. They were there for a purpose. The Jews were known to riot. Plus, it was the highest point, peak in the whole city. They could look at everything all over Jerusalem. Do their best to maintain order, to maintain the Roman peace. And on this particular day, these 
Men, these Jews from Asia had dragged Paul out and were beating him at the base of the steps. And I can just imagine, his name was Claudius Lucius. We find that out in Acts 23, the name of the tribune. He looks over the tower wall and sees this ruckus down below. He takes his men, they go down the stairs of the tower and out down the steps of the street. And I can just see, if you've watched enough movies, you know how the Romans advance. They form a spearhead. And they move into that crowd, pushing them back. And they surround Paul, pick him up, and carry him back up into the fortress, trying to maintain order, to find out what's going on. Soldiers rescued Paul. Roman soldiers rescued this preacher of the gospel. And they were about to carry him into the barracks into the fortress for an interrogation, and Paul says, And the tribune says, You speak Greek? I thought you were an Egyptian. I thought you were the men who led a thousand men out of the desert. Assassins into the wilderness. Paul said, I'm just a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. There was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language. Here's the opportunity for the gospel. And to stop and think. Paul had just been beaten senseless by a crowd of men. I've got to be honest, if I had been beaten like that, I probably would have said, okay, I'll go home. I'll shut up for the day. I don't think I would have stayed away, but at least I would have recovered from my bruises. But I'm not Paul. He wants to talk to these people. He wants them to know the gospel. In chapter 22, as we read, it's mostly about his testimony. He talks about his Jewish heritage. He talks about his upbringing, his education under Gamaliel. He talks about being a Pharisee. He talks about his work. He said, I persecuted the way. That's what they called Christianity back then, the way. I put people in prison because of it. I was even at, at Stephen's execution. When they stoned him, I was holding their coats. And he talked about his conversion on the road to Damascus and about his calling in the ministry. And they were all quiet and they listened until verse 21 Paul is talking, he said, he, talking of Christ, Christ said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to me and they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. You can say just about anything you want about religion. 
You can even say just about anything you want about Christianity, and we're hearing all kinds of garbage about Christianity today. And people are happy to hear it said. But when you say anything about the exclusivity of Christ and the exclusivity of the gospel, you begin to make people angry. We're seeing it now. He was present even then. You can say just about anything you want about Christianity. You can say anything about the church. Once you talk about the exclusivity of Christ and the message of the gospel, you begin to make people angry. No one wants to be told they are not good enough. No one wants to be reminded that they are sinful or that they are sinners. I understand. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm sure it makes you uncomfortable. But in order to stand the good news, you must understand the danger you are in. You're in danger of God's wrath if you do not have Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is the only one that could provide a ransom, that could take you out of it. He is the only one that can deliver you from it. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not witchcraft, nothing but Christ and Christ alone. It's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ and Christ alone. There is something about the hearts of lost people who insist on proving their own righteousness and measuring their own goodness by their own works. I'm a good person. Doesn't God love me? You're not good enough. But he loves me, right? If you are in Christ, you are his. He loves you enough to offer you a price paid, a ransom paid for your salvation. If you receive it, it's a great gift. If you reject it, you have no hope. This world in which we live, and this world is of the spirit of the Antichrist, or the spirit of the age. This world wants you to think that your heart is pure, and all you want, all your, and all of your heart's desires are good and true. You see it in the movies, you see it in books, you see it, you hear it in the music, films, music, stories, novels, poetry. It is a philosophy that is a lie. It's not true. But I love people with my heart. Isn't that? Yeah, that's the, our, our emotion, the seed of our emotion, is what where we want to honor people, where we want to do good for people. But you need to be very careful in understanding, according to Scripture, the heart is deceitful above all things 
and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's a prophet Jeremiah speaking. Again, Proverbs 21, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord sees your secret desires, the appetites and the things you think you need that you secretly manipulate and move around to acquire things you should not have. That's why the heart is deceitful. The heart is also sinful. It might want to love someone and honor them and respect them. It might want to devote a life to someone faithfully, but we all know that faithfulness is a very hard task to maintain for a lifetime. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes. It is not washed from its filthiness. I want to be very careful with this next illustration. There's been some defense offered that perhaps everything that we have heard didn't really happen. But you remember 30 years ago, Woody Allen was accused of having an illicit affair with an adopted daughter who was underage. And it's been said that he was asked, why did you do it? And he responded by saying, the heart wants what the heart wants. Like, my heart was telling me what was true and what I wanted, so I should have followed my heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. And very often when we hear people like that, we understand that they are measuring their own righteousness by what they want and not what God requires. They are lost. The world wants you to think that your heart is pure and all of your heart's desires are good and true. The world does not want to hear that there is only one way to righteousness, and that is Christ. You can say anything about, anything you want about religion or about Christianity. And there are many today trying to redefine Christianity. They say that the gospel is not about exclusivity of Christ. The gospel is about how God loves you and how God accepts you, and how God wants you to be happy, and how God wants you to be successful. You can identify as anyone or anything you want to be, and God would still bless you. You can live in your sin. You can live in rebellion. And that would still be okay with him, or, as they would say today, with her, or with air, or with a... Do you see the insanity, the proud hearts of men? Once you talk about the exclusivity of the gospel and the exclusivity of Christ, you begin to make very many people very angry. And this is where we find the opportunity to really share the gospel. 
Preach it without apology. Don't hold back. Share it without embarrassment, without hesitation, and don't hold back. Well, I'm going to make some people angry. Amen, brother. Amen, sister. Make them angry. Remember, the Apostle Paul had just been beaten, yet he did not compromise his message. Neither should we. Neither should his church. This world is hostile to the gospel. Hostile. They are at war with the gospel. Romans 8, 7, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is a powerful message in that if you just grasp it in your mind and understand. This world hates God. This world hates Christ. And yet, in his own love and in his own mercy and by his own grace, he shed his blood so that this world could be saved. If while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. There's the gospel. And there is only one way to, to achieve salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. It requires fearless faith while facing fierce resistance. Brothers and sisters, we better be ready for it. We better accept it. It's already here. And it will continue to come. Let us not be afraid to preach the gospel. Middle of the 19th century, you're probably familiar with this story. John Patton answered a spiritual call as a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Seas. If, if you don't know where that, if you've ever watched Survivor, the TV show, they've filmed some of their episodes, some of their programs, some of their seasons on several of those islands. Those islands once were filled with headhunters, people who would kill you and eat you for supper. John Patton was a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And when he had decided that by prayer, this was where he should go to serve the Lord, to share the gospel, almost everyone thought it was a very foolish for a promising young... He was not only a missionary of theology, he was also a medical doctor. They thought this was a foolish thing for a man to do. He was gifted, he was skilled, he was intelligent. He was young to give to live among the cruel and uncivilized natives of the islands of the South Pacific. And one man was, this is what you've probably heard of, one man, elderly man said, they're cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. A missionary had already gone several years before, and that very thing happened to him. 
John Patton replied, replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live, I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will be it will make no difference to me whether my body is eaten by cannibals or by worms. John went with his bride. Within a year, he had buried his wife and their newborn daughter, but he continued on. And by the end of his ministry, there were churches planted and congregations started throughout those islands because he was faithful to the exclusivity of Christ. So shall we be. Let us pray. Lord in heaven, thank you again for this day and for this time together. We pray that you may speak to our hearts and inspire us by your word and its truth. And may we also be encouraged and inspired and taught by the examples of the apostles and these events we read about in Acts. Help us, Lord, to be totally yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.